Hello, um, I would like to welcome uh, Vicky Fawcett onto the podcast today. Um, she's here to talk about her research on red quasars and a bit about her work in physics outreach. So, um, Vicky, could you t- start talking about you know, some of the work you do in your PhD? Yeah, so yeah. Hi, it's nice to be here. Um, so yeah, I'm a final year PhD student in the Centre for Extragalactic Astronomy. And for the last four years, my research has been focused on what we call red quasars. So a quasar is a supermassive black hole at the centre of a galaxy, surrounded by material that's incredibly bright, so bright that they um, outshine their entire galaxy. So the majority of quasars are really blue, um, but we found this small subset that show much redder colours, and these are what we call red quasars. And we think that they're red because there's some amount of dust that's scattering the blue light. Um, But why are they interesting? So we found um, fundamental differences between red and blue quasars that suggest red quasars could be a special phase in the evolution of galaxies. So the properties we've been exploring have been predominantly radio. So obviously we see in the visible, but we can use other wavelengths to probe different properties of objects. So we use radio data And when we look in the radio, we find very different properties between the red and the blue. And so this suggests that red quasars might be this special population and important to study in terms of the evolution of galaxies. Okay, so do we know why the radio wavelengths in particular are sort of so different between what's observed in blue and red quasars? Like what's so special about it? Yeah, so we, um, we have some ideas. So in particular, we find that red quasars have enhanced radio emission. So if you look at a population of red quasars and a population of blue quasars in the radio, we find that a higher fraction of the red quasars are detected in radio. And we think there might be a link between the dust that's causing these red colours and the radio emissions. So... One way to produce radio waves is to um, is from shocks. So we think maybe there's some jet or some outflow that's being launched close to the black hole at the centre of this quasar. And this outflow or shock, no, outflow or jet, then slams into the dust in this red quasar. And this then causes shocks. And these shocks causes um, synchrotron synchrotron emission and therefore radio emission. So we think there is is probably a link between radio properties and dust. That's our kind of current working theory. Okay. Um, Earlier you mentioned like you think red quasars might have a like be a part of galaxy formation if I Um, right? Evolution. Evolution. Could you um, expand on that a bit? Yeah so um So the fact that we find these enhanced radio properties, there was kind of two scenarios that people thought would link red and blue quasars together. There was either this, um, what we call an orientation model, which would say that red and blue quasars are intrinsically exactly the same object. We're just looking at them in different angles. And that's how, um, so in a quasar you have what we call a dusty torus is this kind of donut of dust that's a little bit further out from the black hole. So some people thought 
maybe with red quasars we're just looking through this dusty torus and that's where we get the dust from that's why they appear red but the fact that we find these fundamentally different radio properties it rules out this scenario because um the radio is not affected by dust. If it was, we wouldn't even be able to listen to the radio in our house because it would be blocked by our house. So the the other scenario is this evolutionary scenario, and this suggests that red quasars are a younger phase um, in the evolution of quasars or maybe even the evolution of galaxies. And kind of one model for this would be you start with galaxy mergers, so two galaxies crash together. This obviously causes a lot of gas and dust and um, a lot of star formation activity. So then you get this kind of very um, energetic starburst phase. This then ignites a quasar, but you have a lot of leftover dust from this interaction. And this is your red quasar phase. And then through um, jets or winds, you then blow off a lot of the dust and you reveal this unobscured blue quasar. So we have some other kind of properties of red quasars that hint that this might be the case as well. So, for example, if you look at the, Im the radio images, so what is the shape of the radio emission from these quasars? We find that red quasars prefer to have very compact, very small-scale radio emission. And if they are a younger phase, you might think that maybe this is a small radio jet that just hasn't had the time to grow into a larger radio jet. Um, so that, that's kind of some of the ideas we have in terms of um, at least quasar evolution. Okay. So is... What, what, what would you say is like the difference between like just black holes in general and quasars? Like, is every black hole a quasar will become a quasar? Or yeah, that's a it's an interesting question. So, um, so I said that a quasar consists of a a supermassive black hole. But for example, we live in the Milky Way. In the centre of the Milky Way is a supermassive black hole called Sagittarius A star. But the Milky Way is not a quasar. It's not what we call an active galaxy. And this is just because there's not enough material at the centre of our galaxy that, that's fueling and feeding the black hole. So uh, essentially the Milky Way is just not powerful enough to be a quasar. It's not bright enough. So that's kind of how we distinguish. It's more in terms of like power and brightness. And that comes from how much material is being eaten essentially by the black hole okay so do we know like if we know like, i guess how quote-unquote powerful like a galaxy is like how much mass there is can we predict like if if there is a quasar if it will be blue or red or um so not in terms of power so that, like in our work for example we take into account um, what we call luminosity or brightness, we match our samples. So we have an equally powerful sample of blue quasars to red quasars. So we know that we're not um, we're not comparing apples with oranges. Right. We're, we're comparing similar systems, but the only difference is their colour, which, in my opinion, makes them even more interesting. In the case that we think the only difference is that red quasars have. Um, a really moderate amount of dust that's causing these red colours yet we still find um, a lot of kind of funky properties especially in the, the radio 
kind of suggesting that just a small amount of dust really changes the your radio properties in, in a quasar. Okay. Could you um, maybe expand on some of the properties that makes red like like red quasars different from the blue ones? Yeah. Um, so. So yeah, in my work, half of my PhD has been kind of focused on the radio properties. So we have this enhanced radio emission. It's compact. Um, we also look for. We're trying to find what causes this radio emission. So I, I've said that it's a. Um, I kind of off the hand comment said it was winds or jets. But there's a lot of things that can cause radio emission. Star formation, for example, um, causes radio emission. And part of my work is that I ruled out star formation as the cause of these weird radio properties. So we narrowed it down to either winds or jets could be causing the radio emission. And kind of in an upcoming study, actually, that I'm working on, we're hoping to distinguish between the two or maybe say that it, it's a mixture you can have wind these winds kind of outflows and these radio jets as well um, in terms of other properties we had a student that was working um, on the x-ray properties so um, so Sophie um, Ego who was a she did a, a master's well, a level four project um, at Durham University with our group and she found some different properties in the x-rays which I'm not as familiar with but we think that red quasars have different x-ray spectral slopes and we're not really sure what that means yet we're still this is quite early um yeah early results and then something else I've been working on is a link between red quasars and these other unusual type of quasars which we call broad absorption line quasars or bowel quasars but don't worry about kind of the name there's lots of weird different types of quasars but these um these bowel quasars are just simply quasars known to have really really powerful winds so people study them because they want to study these powerful winds because if you have these strong winds this could affect the way that a galaxy evolves because you're um, maybe disrupting star formation and things like that. So the fact we find some weird links between red quasars and these very powerful wind-dominated quasars could hint that there's also powerful winds in red quasars. But again, we, this is um, very preliminary results that we haven't we haven't actually written up that paper yet. So okay, yeah. So you said that you're going to work on a study like determining whether or not it's one of those two or maybe a combination of both. How, um, how like, certain are you that you'll get a sort of satisfactory answer by the end? Um, not that certain, but, I mean, I think that's what makes science quite mm. interesting, is that um, I, I won't go into the, the details, but it, it's quite a simple experiment. We're just looking... Um, we're going to plot some radio data, and there's one scenario c could cause uh, the radio data to look one way, and then the other... Um, winds would produce a different radio spectrum and yeah it could be the case that all the red quasars show um, fall into one category and then that's job done they're all you know wind dominated for example but what's more likely to happen is it's going to be a bit of both it's going to be a mixture it's going to be a bit unclear and I think that happens a lot in astronomy that it's not 
it's not clear cut. So I, I don't really think. I think maybe it's a little bit naive of us to do this whole wins versus jets. It could be a combination, but it's still a good tester to see. Um. Yeah, I think that is quite interesting. Like um, many people might think, like if you don't get a definite answer, then you know what's the point of doing it. But yeah, I think I guess the great part about science is that you know trying to find the best sort of explanation for things and sometimes maybe the best we can do is sort of rule things out but yeah. even that's not like a waste of time right no exactly um like part of uh, my last paper that should be published in the next month um that's uh, that was looking to see if there were any differences in like the black hole properties so like black hole mass black hole spin the accretion rate onto the black hole between red and blue quasars um because our, our what we were thinking is if, if there were differences with the central engine, that could maybe produce these weird differences in, in the radio. That could be another explanation. And we don't find any difference or any significant difference between, for example, black hole mass between red and blue. And so essentially that was an, a null result. We don't find any difference, but it's still a result because, like you said, it, it's ruling out one scenario. And I think over at least my PhD from when I started to where we're at now we're starting to get a much clearer idea of what these red quasar type systems actually are. Okay so how come you sort of chose to go into a PhD in like astronomy? Well it was quite um, a windy road actually I did you know I didn't there's lots of people that have these stories that you know when they were nine they looked <laughs> up at the stars and then they knew they were on, they were going to be an astronomer. But I mean, I'd always I've always been good at maths, so at school I really enjoyed maths. And I think at the back of my mind, I always thought that I would go to university and do maths. And it was only at my during my A levels that I started to really enjoy the physics, and that threw me a little bit because I then suddenly wasn't quite sure what to do. So. I mean, I never made a decision. I did maths and physics. <laughs> so I went I went to the University of Warwick and I, I did a joint degree. And even then, I did a research project in particle physics one summer because I thought, oh, the particle physics, is, I'm really enjoying that. I think I enjoy research. And I did, I really enjoyed the like research environment. It made me decide kind of more that research is something that I definitely wanted to do. But I wasn't as keen on particle physics as I thought I was. And then in my master's, I then decided to try astronomy. People that know University of Warwick, it's very big on exoplanets. So I did a master's project on exoplanets. There wasn't a great deal of choice there. And again, I really enjoyed doing the research um, I probably spent way too much time on my, because I did an integrated master so I probably spent way too much time on my actual research project than I did revising for exams because I, I just enjoyed it so much <laughs> but again decided wasn't sure about exoplanets, um, I wanted to do something a bit more a bit more powerful, a bit more um, I don't know, yeah a bit more exciting in, in my opinion so I, I just remember doing a module that covered AGN and quasars and decided that that might be quite a cool thing to study. So it was really, I guess, the end of my third year, maybe even 
during my fourth year at undergrad that kind of solidified what I wanted to do for my PhD, which might be slightly unusual. I know a lot of people just carry on what they're doing in in their master's to PhD, but I guess what I'm saying is that you don't have to decide from, like, you know, day one of university what you want to do. You can try out a few things and decide. Yeah, I think that's... Thank you for that perspective. That's quite good to hear. I think, like... A lot of the people I've asked about this kind of thing say like, you know, they just kind of, it seems they kind of, you know, throw things at the wall until something sticks. Yeah, basically. I mean, like, you know. Um, yeah, I've been trying to, like, find internships and things to, like, get to experience some research, but, yeah, it's quite hard to find anything. I, I know, um, obviously I know Warwick a bit better than Durham, but I know Durham Astronomy Department, at least, they do the similar to what Warwick did which was these summer placements so because I know a few people that have summer students occasionally and that really helped me out so if Durham you know do anything like that in physics at least they do in astronomy and you're not sure about research it's a good you know it's two to three months you, you give it a go you either enjoy it or you hate it so yeah it's it's a good thing to do um I, to be honest, I missed out the part where I, I wanted to be a nuclear physicist for, I think that was second year of undergrad, um, and again I changed my mind from that. So, I mean, luckily I haven't changed my mind from astro- these quasars. It's something I really enjoyed studying. So I, I've decided that's that's what I like doing, <laughs> and that's what I want to continue doing for as long as I can, I guess. Okay. If you, like, all of a sudden had to stop doing your research on quasars, do you think there's anything else you'd pick? Still in research? Yeah, Um, still in research. Yeah, so I was... Basically, I'm making myself sound like I was very indecisive. I guess (laughs) I was. Um, So even when I was choosing PhDs, I was very close to doing gravitational waves, actually, because it was... um, I graduated in 2018, so remember it was 2017 when gravitational waves were like, you know, the first detection, won the Nobel Prize, they were the the new exciting thing. So there were were a lot of PhD positions that were like, you can be um, this team of astronomers that are going to detect the first ever, you know, gravitational waves. And back then, I think it was when the neutron star... um, binary neutron star system hadn't been detected yet so there was a lot but people thought knew that that was going to happen at some point so I was very close to doing gravitational waves so that would probably be my answer I I still like to just see see how they're going occasionally because it's what what I could have done um, if I'd chosen a different route do they actually like try to sell it to you like that like when it's I guess topical like yeah it well you know that um that was the dilemma I had because quasars, you know, they first discovered in, I'm going to say, 1960s. Hopefully that's right. Uh, there's a lot of work that's been done on quasars. And you get to the point where you do worry, am I going to get to a point where the, there is no new discoveries? Luckily, in astronomy, we just don't understand a lot of things. There's always new discoveries. And red quasars are one of these examples that it was only, I think, a year or two before I joined Durham that the fir- that they um, looked into these radio properties and started to actually kind of focus on red quasars in, in my research group. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's always nice to kind of jump on these bandwagons of the, the c- 
current thing. Um, I mean, at the moment, I would say it's probably exoplanets is the is the big thing at the moment. Like exoplanet atmospheres seems to be what a lot of people are studying. Okay. Yeah, I guess it's quite exciting to think about like being in a field where there's like cutting edge stories to be made. Of a, I don't know. I feel like. Um, I've heard it, it can probably be quite easy to sort of like chase the ideal of like making yeah like a really big discovery but like I think it's quite you know equally important to actually make sure you're enjoying what you're actually like dedicating your you know life purpose to yeah no um, I know especially with a PhD um, I always say that if you're not too sure what you want to do when you do a master's and you don't enjoy it then it's only a year well in this country it's only a year in European most European countries it's two years so it's not the end of the world if you essentially I guess I don't want to use the word waste because I'm sure you would have gained something but just not really enjoyed a year a PhD is quite a commitment so you I guess the one bit of advice that I got quite a lot and I would give other people that are considering a PhD is you do need to enjoy what the, the project that you're applying to or the field that you're applying to needs to excite you in some way because you you need to be motivated to go into to do your work every day to look at these you know these objects and yeah thankfully for me I I can say I, I four years down the line I, I still enjoy That's researching good. red quasars <laughs> so yeah yeah um yeah, everyone. Uh, I, I, like, I've spoken to a few people about this, and they say like, yeah, you know, every like undergraduate comes in with wide-eyed enthusiasm, saying they're going to go into research, I'm going to do a PhD, and then you know, get stamped out. <laughs> I mean, I guess the similar things said for PhD students that everyone comes into a PhD like I'm going to be this great, you know, scientist. I'm going to be a professor, and then a lot of people just get you know a few years in and decide actually, I just want to you know go and. I guess the standard one is just go and be a data scientist, and especially since in academia you don't you don't earn a lot of money. You do it because it's it's fun. So if it isn't fun for you, and you can earn a lot of money doing other things, then that's kind of your choice. Um, but yeah, I um, yeah, it doesn't really. I don't think it's a bad thing if say you do your undergrad degree and you realize you don't really like the subject you just university has a lot of other things to offer you just get your degree you make friends you do societies then you leave university and you know probably don't use your degree much but your degree is a, a, a doorway basically mm -hmm. to other things and then you'll find a job that you really enjoy yeah it's like uh, we were talking about like no results earlier I guess you know finding you don't like what you do your degree in isn't necessarily a waste either. No, I like most people, like I I have friends that obviously have graduated and gone into careers and for some of them they've, you know, been in multiple jobs, some jobs they've hated and, you know, it's taken them two to three years to actually kind of find a job that they actually enjoy. So I think, yeah, it's a bit of a myth, maybe that is installed to us at school, that you should know what career you want to do from, you know, when you're picking A-levels, like, oh, you've got to pick your A-levels because you should know what you want to do at yeah. university because you should know what job that leads to. And yes, in a way, obviously, if you're doing a science 
degree and then suddenly you decide you want to go into journalism like you might find it quite difficult but yeah you, you don't need to know the exact job you want to do you'll hopefully just work that out with, with time yeah like I, I remember for a while when I like realized I, wanted, I was wanted to go into like a sort of scientific career I, I was like regretting doing edible computer science over say chemistry or something to sport physics but uh, looking back on it I, you know, I don't think it was so bad like it was good to be exposed to something like not so like so well it's still quite maths yeah I guess but you know, not so like intertwined of maths and like the school by like, different skills that I learned like programming were really interesting and actually like a lot more useful than I thought they would be even like after finishing the A level yeah, no, I, to be honest, I made the mistake of, well, not the mistake, I, I hated programming. Um, I, I found it really difficult, I really struggled, um, and I just had this, like, I, I don't need it, I'm never going to need it, I hate it. And at Warwick, it was a little bit different to Durham, where the, most of the programming modules were optional, so I just didn't take programming, so I didn't really know how to program, and then until my master's when I was forced to program because essentially in science you mainly use programming to take some data and make a nice plot so that you can put into your thesis or paper or whatever so in my master's I suddenly had to quite quickly learn to program which would have been so much easier if I'd actually learned during the um, undergrad or even you know taken computing A level and now I, I find it a bit ironic that I actually teach first years at Durham <laughs> how to program in Python. And I think back to when I was a first year, I was like, I, I, yeah, I hated it and I was so bad at it. And now I teach it. But it, yeah, you realise that programming, um, well, it's actually quite fun and it's incredibly useful. And the majority of STEM careers will have some aspect of programming. So I would definitely recommend you know learning learning to program and sticking with it this it would be my advice yeah i was surprised and i realized like how much programming is used in like especially theoretical sort of research like with models and things like i, I thought i wouldn't be like kind of leaving it behind after a levels but like you know don't really uh like forcing it down my throat <laughs> which, it, yeah. which is like i'm glad actually i do like it it is a good thing it's painful at first when you're you, especially um, for me in, in first year, you're up against people that have done computing A-level. So I didn't do computing A-level. So they're at such a higher um, starting point than you are. So it just makes you feel like you know, you're not very good and um, you don't know anything, but you, you catch up quite quickly. And once you get over like the initial hurdle um, of, of like being familiar with the, kind of the language and stuff, it becomes a lot easier and yeah, when people ask me, well, what do you actually do in your PhD? Like, what, what do you do day to day when you sit down at your desk? It's basically just Python programming, just every day. So, wow. Yeah. Um, because I don't do, like, sophisticated modelling and simulations. I don't do what I call, like, high-level computing. I just kind of, I have a problem or I want to make a graph and then I have to just think, how, how can I write a script that will solve that problem or produce that plot and I find that quite interesting actually it's kind of like problem solving but through 
programming. Yeah. It's quite funny. I, like Part of the reason why I sort of went away from computer science is because I thought, oh, you know, I like programming, but I can't see myself, you know, sitting in front of a desk doing it all day. And then in science, it turns out that might be what I, I do. But Probably. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that wouldn't be so bad. Yes, it's all right. So I thought next maybe we could talk about like things you've done in terms of like outreach in physics and why that's something that's important to you. Yes, so um, well for me I I started getting involved in outreach like first year of my my PhD and I I really only started getting involved because I was quite nervous at speaking I, I hated presenting I'd have like sleepless nights before doing any kind of presentation I'd be there like um, presenting I'd be shake, like physically shaking and stuff and so it, it was kind of a way for me to try and improve my communication and my, my confidence and that's how it started but when I started doing outreach I actually realised this was something I quite enjoyed and the more I did it, the more I kind of saw the need for outreach. So for me, that the kind of outreach I do is like we would go to schools and we do astronomy workshops with, you know, kind of uh, kids. And other things I do is I give like astronomy talks to the public. So in science, a massive thing is scientific communication, especially, for example, my the way that my PhD is funded is actually through this, the scientific uh, STFC, the Scientific Technology Facilities Council, that's funded by the government, which is funded by the taxpayer. So essentially, you know, ordinary people are funding for me to do a PhD. So part of that funding is you're kind of um, kind of expected to give something back to the community. So that would be through outreach. So I like giving public astronomy talks, whether that's to university astronomy societies or to amateur astronomical societies um, to like slightly older adults but also my main the main way I like to do outreach is at schools and for me that's more because I really like to encourage women to pursue STEM and for me I think that's kind of bias starts from a very young age you, you are kind of indoctrinated as children to, you know, like one thing or another. For example, like next time, I think it's getting a little bit better, but what I noticed as a child, I always quite liked space. I liked rockets and things. If you go to try and buy, like, a bedspread for a girl, you go to the girl section, it's just unicorns and pink and flowers. You go to the, the boy section, it's space and rockets and superheroes and things like that so I think toys and ridiculous things like bedspreads and clothes get gendered from a very young age and I think um well a story related to this is I actually got the chance to go to um go to NASA in America and I went to the gift shop because obviously I wanted a nice <laughs> NASA t-shirt and I went to the the women's section and the only NASA T-shirts, and this is this is not a joke, were either pink or they were sequined. And I, I actually went to one of. I was like, this can't, this can't be right. This, you know, in this day and age. So I went to the shop attendant. And I was like, oh, um, do you not just have you know the classic blue NASA logo, but in women's? Um, and they were like, um, I'm sorry, we we only do that in men's. 
and I, I refused to buy a pink NASA t-shirt, so I actually bought a small men's top because that was the one that I wanted. It, it's things like that that just... It, it's these little, little things, like not outright sexism, just these little kind of things that make you question, oh, is is science not not for women then if you can't you know if they're you can't even buy a nasa t-shirt for in a women's style so yeah that was quite a rambling story but essentially i i do quite i do believe in just young children seeing that women can be astronomers it just kind of um unconsciously they're just aware that that's an option they've seen a female astronomer they're like oh, that's something I could do if I want. So that that's kind of why I like to do outreach. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think I would um, agree that, like, there's, there's definitely a sort of, I guess, unspoken um, like scripts in society, like what's, what's acceptable for, I guess, men to go into and women to go into, like... Like... When, like, there's a, say female like I know physicists like well if it was a male like I just wouldn't really notice whereas anytime it's a female physicist like obviously I'm not gonna think oh they must be um like less able than a man like, obviously I would never think that but like it's just I guess something that you notice like oh you know they're female but like yeah. it, it, if you think about it it's quite weird like, in the first place but it's something that's quite notable yeah, it, it, there's things like in my my physics A-level class, I was one of two um, women out of, I think, that, I think there were like 25 of us. At, um, at undergrad level, I'm, I'm just guessing numbers now, but it's, especially in maths and physics, it was, you know, around like 20, 20%. On my Durham PhD interview day, I was the only woman on my PhD interview day. They did they do them in little batches, so and so I was one of twelve. And you know, walking into a room and looking and like being, oh, I'm the only woman. Like it's you know, it's not not an issue, but it's something you instantly notice. Mm, definitely. So yeah, there's there is still it's definitely getting better. I, I've noticed, but there's there's still definitely you know a long way to go so and I think that you know outreach is not the solution but it's just one of the things we can do to just this keep this kind of encouragement um, and acceptance that women also do STEM okay so I guess the other side of outreach is like I guess educating the public about science and things like that so I guess that's not really like something that drove me to make me start a physics podcast, but I mean, that's quite a big, I guess, part about sort of casual scientific, like you know, things like that. Um, what What are your thoughts on that kind of part of outreach? Yeah, so I I do think it's it's important for us to to communicate to the public. And you know all of this, like oh, I, oh, they wouldn't understand. I, I think that's kind of rubbish. And um, I think was it Einstein? Oh, I don't. Someone that said, you know, if you can't, you know, explain it to a child, then you don't understand it. It's, you know, you can explain any sort of science to the public, and especially, I think the pandemic has kind of 
shown the need for science communication. Um, we've always known that it's important, but the amount of, I don't want to use the word, I'll use it, fake news kind of going around and people with their own like weird scientific theories of like why vaccines are awful and you know why masks don't work and then actually these scientists coming forward are going communicating clearly to the public like actually vaccines work actually masks work here is the science i can explain it to you this is why it works you know this this is the science you, you can't really dispute it um so i think the the current age of misinformation i think that's why science communication is important and also just getting people you know excited and curious about the world around us making them a little bit open more open-minded to thinking about things and think, thinking about things in the wider context like where are we in the universe where are we heading um how did how did it all start kind of these bigger questions i think it's always good for people to kind of take pause and think about that as well yeah definitely um yeah you hear like people talk about how you know they don't sort of teach i guess the like philosophy behind their scientific method and things like that in school and you know maybe that's something that should be focused on more than just like you know naming the electromagnetic spectrum and mm. things like that but it, yeah it is it is, it is difficult for teachers because they do have this set curriculum but it's because there's just not enough time at school you have to get this base um, knowledge in order for to set kids up to go to university and then learn about it in greater depth but the problem about with that is like you say you have all these kids that are learning about Pythagoras you know there was that classic you know when are we ever going to use Pythagoras and people just learning um learning things for the sake of passing exams and then just not really understanding where that actually lies in terms of why you know, people using it to help the world and um, how yeah how you would use that in science what what's the point of it all so yeah unfortunately I, I don't know how you can fix that apart from maybe more outreach <laughs> people kind of yeah and hopefully inspiring people that what you know just learning some equations at school actually is a good thing and you, we can use those equations for all these really cool things that you know from uh from fluid dynamics to astronomy to launching rockets and just all these types of things so yeah yeah i remember um when doing like a level physics from from gcse's i remember becoming actually like quite surprised at how little I actually understood things at GCSE like like I did, I did like well in the exams and things but like things like especially things like circuits like you learn the equations and you do them but like really I, I, I definitely did not really know what like a volt was mm. or what it meant or anything like that so I guess there is um it's an argument to be made that maybe there should be more focus on sort of understanding things. I, I think there's there's definitely a put. So my my mum actually is a maths teacher at school, and so you know they get observed by Ofsted um, in the UK where they judge judge teaching and things like that. And I know definitely in the last um, my mum was saying in the last like ten years there's been a big push to what they call like deeper understanding. So it is this push to 
um, that they have realised that you know a lot of kids just do turn off if they're just asked to rope learn, you know, memorise all these these things that they they find that really boring because it is really boring just to memorise a load of equations and things like that. So I think there is a push at schools to move towards more of the why. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's good. You know. Maybe in like 25 years, my kids will actually know what our potential difference is. <laughs> we could <can> only hope. <laughs> um, yeah, okay. Uh, I think maybe we can wrap up there. Um, yeah. Vicky, is there like anything that you'd want to mention, like anywhere where people can find you on, online? Yes, so um, I, I do have a, a website, so it's Victorious Fawcett on Google Sites. Um, and I'm quite active on Twitter, so feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. I, my uh, Twitter handle is astro underscore faucet, um, F-A-W-C-E-T-T. And you can also find my departmental profile on Durham and you can email me if, if you want as well. If you have any questions about what I've talked about or what it's like doing uh, astronomy PhD. OK, thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you.